Well, in the movie um, Inception, Leonardo DiCaprio is skilled at entering dreams and extracting information. However, instead of infiltrating dreams, Leonardo is asked to do Inception, planting an idea in the mind of the dreamer, an idea that would grant him a new desire and cause him to make a decision to give away the blessing of the birthright that his wealthy father had left him in his will. But it only worked if he believed his imagination. Everyone has an imagination. Imagination is often how we see the world, particularly in terms of things we can't actually see. The creative imagination, the ability to conceive of something that doesn't already exist is a source of art and invention. We can take our imagination to create stories, art, film, music, dance, architecture, and it can inspire questions that will influence science, technology, even cooking. Michelangelo was able to look at a block of marble and use his imagination to create David. In that sense, it's great, but imagination has a dark side. Since before, we have learned to use our imaginations for evil. Think about how Hitler's propaganda used embarrassing racist images about the Jews to influence and then weaponize the imagination of the Germans to do unspeakable things. In 2013, researchers in Sweden conducted a study that found that our imaginations can change our perceptions of reality. Your mind can literally play tricks on you by changing illusions of what you think and hear and see into what seems like reality. The reason God decided to flood the world in Genesis 6 was because he saw that of man, that every inclination of the thoughts and imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And this is the danger for us today, that like inception, our imaginations and dreams might lead us away from God causing us to forfeit the blessing of a relationship with him. And as the famous adage goes, those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And what better event to learn from about the danger of the imagination than the most famous example of idolatry in the Old Testament, which first teaches us that Israel is a forgetful and idolatrous people. Now, after freeing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt with great might through devastating miracles, and giving his law, Moses has ascended Mount Sinai to receive instructions about the tabernacle. And Aaron, his older brother, was left in charge. Now, I thought it might be helpful to put ourselves in Aaron's shoes to consider how things could have been unraveled so quickly. Well, Moses had been up on that mountain for almost 40 days since we had heard anything from him. And he didn't tell us how long he was going, going for. So some of us started to panic and think maybe he died up there. Moses was the only point of contact we had with God. One day I came out of my tent to see a crowd of Israelites gathering around and they were angry and tired of waiting. They felt vulnerable to attack, having recently been attacked by the Amalekites. And they wanted to keep moving on to the promised land with God's guidance and power. And they said to me, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man you brought up us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. When the Lord appeared to us on the mountain, we only heard his voice, but they wanted gods to go before their face, impressive gods that they could, that, that could reassure them like the nations. So what was I to do? They expected me to do something. And if I didn't, who knows what they would have done to me? So I used my imagination. Hmm, what could pass for a really impressive God? And then it hit me. When we were in Egypt, the Egyptians used the shape of a young bull to depict the power of God. Hmm, that's good. 
So I asked them to give me their gold rings, which I melted. Then I got out my trusty tools and sculpted the calf. And when they saw it, they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Wow, it, it really worked. They kept saying gods, which wasn't quite right, but they were still talking about gods. So I just went with it and made an altar and said, tomorrow we shall have a feast to the Lord. You see what I did there? I said, the Lord, singular. That should fix that problem. The next day, I organized burnt offerings to atone for our sins. I mean, just in the slim chance God isn't all that happy with the bull, maybe the sacrifice will make him happy again. And fellowship offerings to celebrate our ongoing covenant relationship with God. Yes, yeah, some of them got a bit carried away and started dancing and singing and doing other stuff that, well, wasn't that great. It looked a bit like what the Egyptians used to do at their feast, but hey, we did have the burnt offerings. And so let's take a step back now for a minute from Aaron, Aaron's perspective. Aaron was, has clearly broken the second commandment almost word for word as he makes an image for the Israelites to worship. And it seems that they've also broken the first commandment by claiming that multiple gods brought them out of Egypt. How could they do this? Well, for hundreds of years, the Israelites were still living in Egypt, deeply influenced by its pagan culture, and old habits and ways of thinking die hard. And in times of stress, people often justify and revert to those things, even when they're useless or destructive. In Psalm 106, it reflects on this moment and gives us the root of the problem when it says, they forgot the God who saved them, who had brought, done great things in Egypt. And such sin is deadly serious. We, um, why is this sandwich sandwiched between ongoing instructions about the building of the tabernacle? Highlight the sin that must be uprooted if God is to dwell with his people. And to show us that what Israel really needs is a faithful mediator to intercede and atone for them. Again, let's look at how Moses responded from his perspective. For 40 days, I was on that mountain, receiving instructions about how we should build God a tabernacle that he might dwell among us. Just the thought of God's presence being with us was so exciting. But all of a sudden, after 40 days of instructions, God suddenly spoke to me saying, Israel had rejected God's commands, worshipped a golden calf, and corrupted themselves. I was shocked. How could they have forgotten what God said and so brazenly break the second commandment? God had always referred to Israel as my people and even my firstborn son. But in that moment, God referred to this stubborn and stiff-necked people as this people. If God wasn't their God anymore, then Israel was no longer in a covenant relationship. And like the flood, God threatened to bring down judgment on the entire nation and to start again with me as the new Abraham through whom he could make a, a great nation again. I totally understand why God was so angry, but... I couldn't resign to the destruction of Israel. I love them. And so I was committed to doing whatever I could to save them. Now, Israel might be out of covenant relationship with God, but I'm not. So I can still speak to God knowing he'll listen to me. So I expressed my grief and sadness to God of the thought that they might be destroyed. A bunch of thoughts came into my mind before I spoke. The first was, they meant well, but I, I know they didn't. The second was, they'll try harder next time, but I know they wouldn't. So instead, I appealed to God's faithfulness because more than anything, I wanted God to be honored because of who he is. And I had three arguments. The first was to remind God that they were his people who he brought out of Egypt. If God destroyed them, 
all these saving acts would be for nothing. The second was to remind God that if he did this, he would um, give Israel's enemies further reason to mock him. And finally, I quoted God's own words to Abraham and asked why God should go back on his promise to the patriarchs. Like Abraham in Genesis, when he appealed on behalf of the city of Sodom, he might just listen to me. There was a brief moment and I heard the sweetest words from God. He relented from destroying Israel. God would remain committed to Israel as his people, his people. So I thought there is hope for the covenant yet. And I started making my way down the mountain with the Ten Commandments that God had personally written. I met up with Joshua on the way and we continued down the mountain. And as we did, we heard the voice of people shouting. And Joshua, being a military leader, thought it was the shouts of war and the screams of pain. But I'd been told exactly what it was. Drunken singing, wild dancing, men and women screaming as they chased one another. All the kinds of things the Egyptians used to do. And when I saw the calf and the dancing, I felt the same anger God felt burning inside of me. They had violated the covenant, so I smashed the tablets on the ground. If the Israelites were not prepared to obey the law, I didn't deserve to have it, I thought. And the next thing I did, well, seems kind of crazy saying it out loud, but I got the calf, I ground it into powder, and I made them drink it as a symbol of how corrupt they'd become. I was thinking this way they could never scavenge the gold again for such a terrible thing. And I asked Aaron, Aaron, you know better. You're the high priest. The only way I can see you doing something so stupid to commit such a great sin is that these people did something for you first. But Aaron's reply made me feel like I was back in the garden listening to Adam deflecting the blame for eating the forbidden fruit. First, he blamed the people who said they were set on evil. Then he insulted, um, insinuated that it was my fault by quoting what the people had said, that I had essentially abandoned them. But the last was the most ridiculous of all. Get this. He said he threw the gold into the fire and surprise, a miracle, out came a calf. But he didn't fool me. Now, if I was like a parent washing their, kid, their kid's mouth out with soap for misbehaving, then the Israelites are like a rebellious child who refuses to learn their lesson. Aaron let them break out so that they might no longer listen to us. And so I did what God told me to do and positioned myself between Israel and non-Israel and called the people to decide, giving people an opportunity to repent. And Aaron and the Levites joined me and we killed those who refused to repent. Now, this might seem like an extreme act, but I knew I couldn't leave idolaters in the middle of, in the midst of Israel to influence others away from God. But something still needed to be done about the guilt that still hung over Aaron and the Levites who had repented of their idolatry. God had told me that the high priest needed to come into the tabernacle to make an atonement by sprinkling blood on the altar to cover over the sins of the people. So I went back up that mountain and did exactly that. I plead with God to take me instead, thinking perhaps I could make atonement for their sins. I was willing to pay the ultimate price if it meant saving my people. And to my relief, God commanded me to continue on in the Exodus plan. He would not destroy Israel, but that those who sinned against the Lord would be blotted out of his book. 
Nevertheless, he said that a day would come when he would visit their sin upon them, and he sent a plague on the people as a sample of his greater judgment to come. Okay, so let's step back and reflect. Israel may have been sincere in their worship, who knows? Many people today believe the idea that it really doesn't matter what your beliefs are as long as you're sincere in those beliefs. Because we just saw being sincere isn't enough. It's possible to be full of sincere worship and worship the wrong God in the wrong way. Very few people believe that the Holocaust was a good thing, but Hitler was very sincere in what he was doing. You can be sincere and just plain wrong. The most important aspect of our faith is not how hard we believe, but in whom we believe. Now, a question you might have is, what does it mean that God relented? Did God really change his mind? Numbers 23.19 clearly says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said that he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? So God doesn't change his eternal plans because of something that takes him by surprise. But he loves to hear our prayers and he has planned to use our prayers to bring about his purposes. Don Carson wrote his PhD on how God's is what he said. God's relenting is based on a prior promise that God has declared as a pattern based on character. Namely, if a people to whom God's judgment is promised turn from their sin, the law will not carry out the judgment. Such passages are a part of the picture of God as a personal God who interacts with his people. And what did God do in this instance? He spared those who turned from their sin. Now, another big question raised is, if people can be blotted out of God's book, then does that mean God doesn't elect or choose people from eternity to salvation? Well, we know from places like Revelation 20 that there are several books that God uses as the basis for his judgment. Now, my understanding of these books is that there can be two categories. The first can be called the books of historical election. These are those who externally identify with God's people, some of whom walk away from God and are removed. They are the natural branches in Romans 11 that are broken off because of unbelief. Only time will tell if you remain in these books or not. The second can be called the book of eternal election. If you're in this book, it's because, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. God's, Paul spoke with confidence that those who have trusted Christ for salvation as fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Such election cannot be lost and it is not at all conditioned on human faithfulness or works. No action or eraser can remove your name from this book. But we all sin. And so just like the Israelites, we need a faithful mediator to intercede and atone for us. Moses offers to die in the place of the guilty that they might receive life. What is necessary to make proper atonement for sin is not the sacrifice of an animal, but a person. But God rejects his offer because he is not suited to carry it out because he's a sinner. The substitute must be one without blemish or fault, like the sacrificial animals of the Old Testament. There was a day when God visited Israel's sin upon them in the 6th century BC, when the Babylonians destroyed Judah and the remaining Israelites were sent into exile. And yet, there was another day, 600 years after the Babylonian exile, where God again visited Israel to bring judgment in a much more final way. Jesus, the perfect and faithful Son of God, was worthy of bearing our guilt because he himself was without guilt, a perfect and blameless sacrifice. Jesus was faithful like Moses, though like Israel, his people did not receive him. 
And like Moses, he ascended into God's presence as the representative of the church. So that as our high, great high priest, Hebrews 7.25 says, Christ always lives to intercede for his people. His existence in heaven guarantees the effectiveness of his atonement forever and secures our forgiveness. All of this can happen because Israel has a compassionate and forgiving God. At the end of Exodus 32, Israel is not fully restored, and so Moses intercedes with the Lord on behalf of his people, pleading that God's presence might go with them. And so, to assure Moses of his continuing presence, in Exodus 34, verse 6, he reveals his character. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, why did God wait to reveal his character now? Because it's only in light of the episode of the golden calf that we can truly understand what he is like. Recall that the word for God, relenting, carries with it the idea of having compassion. The severity of Israel's idolatry provides the context into which God's compassion can be displayed. And so in chapter 34, verse 67, we find the resolution to the golden calf episode. In revealing himself using his covenant name, Yahweh, God reinforces that the covenant between God and Israel is reestablished after the golden calf incident and their relationship is restored. Now, the good news of the gospel is that God doesn't punish idolatry the same way he did back then. Rather, a mediator has come who had no sin to become sin for us, to pay the price for our idolatry. But if you don't trust in Christ, this passage is a warning because it's only a small glimpse of the judgment that awaits. Jesus stands between God's people and destruction, and he calls you, to join him and be spared because he loves you. If you're a Christian, then this passage reminds us that idolatry needs to be removed from our hearts urgently. An idol, according to Tim Keller, is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, something you trust, love, and serve more than God. And like the worthless shiny trinkets the British Empire used to offer the tribal villages, when colonizing their foreign lands, an idol seeks to distract you so that you're willing to give up what's most valuable, God. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. Imagine you're married and you say, I want to introduce you to someone who's very special to me. She's lovely and I'm going to spend some time with her and also a lot of time with you. You both mean so much to me. What would your spouse say? She'd be rightly furious and tell you, you've got to make up your mind. It's me or her. And so it is with God. Now, most of us aren't tempted to bow down before trees and statues, but the same forces at work in the ancient world that made idolatry attractive are still with us today. Some of the best summaries, uh, one of the best summaries of the attraction of idolatry comes from the Old Testament scholar Doug Stewart. In his Exodus commentary, he lists nine reasons the Israelites were so drawn to idolatry. One, it was guaranteed if you did the right prayer, the God gave then god gave you what you wanted two it was selfish if you did what god wanted he gave you what you wanted three it was easy it didn't matter what you did most of the time all that you had to do was show up and present drink and a dead animal it was convenient ancient worship was like going to your local mcdonald's there were many places you could go to take care of your religious obligations five it was normal everyone else though their gods had different names and did different things did religion the same way Six, it was logical. It made sense that there were many gods and goddesses, each one specializing in an area of blessing and an area of the world. 
Seven, it was pleasing to the senses. The statues people made were very attractive and impressive. It was much easier to believe in something you could see. Eight, it was indulgent. Idolatry was an occasion for eating the best food and drinking the best wine. And nine, it was erotic. Sex could make all their problems go away and bring fruitful harvests from the gods. Now, if idolatry still has the same allure as it did in Moses' day, how do we diagnose it? Well, in Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, he shares the following questions that will help you diagnose the idols of your heart. And I'll mention a few. Life only has meaning if I have power and influence over others. This is power idolatry. I am loved and respected by approval idolatry. People are dependent on me and need me, helping idolatry. I have been recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excellent at my work, achievement idolatry. I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom and very nice possessions, materialism idolatry. My race and culture is ascendant and recognized as superior, racial or cultural idolatry. A particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me in, in a ring idolatry. My children and or parents are happy with me. Family idolatry. Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. Relationship idolatry. I have a particular kind of look or body image, image idolatry. So where do your thoughts go for joy and comfort? What do you fear the most? What makes you angry? What do you sacrifice for? What do you rely on? Let me give you an example from my life to help you reflect on yours as they're not always easy to spot. Some of you might be like me. Um, I idolize the approval of others. Now, how do I know? Because when I'm late for work or for a meeting or an appointment with someone, I sometimes panic, get stressed, and even sometimes get angry. And because anger is a blocked goal, it's a guide to tell me I have an idol that I'm protecting. I also know that I idolize work. How do I know? Because I sacrifice for it. And I've noticed that I've been sacrificing family for work because where I, as I'm very diligent in trying to get to work meetings on time, I'm very relaxed about the time I get home. And it's often between 15 minutes and half an hour after I've said I'll be home. And this sermon's actually really helpful for me to continue to expose these idols. And I've been trying to remember God's word to help me put to death these idols. So when Pip asked me this week to pick up Lydia from preschool, what would make I sought to make pleasing God and honoring my wife my number one priority and quickly. I hope that's helpful. So how do we identify the idols of our, if that's how we identify the idols, how do we overcome them? Well, let me to approaches, the moralistic approach. What if you find that you have a habit of lying? What do you do about it? A moralistic way of thinking focuses on your behavior. And it's often motivated by fear. I must stop doing this because God will punish me. He won't bless me. The moralistic way of thinking goes, doesn't go deep enough. What desires and idols are drawing you to do those things? The second is the gospel approach. You need to begin by asking the question, why am I lying in this particular situation? The reason we lie is because at that moment, there is something we feel that we simply must have, like someone's approval. And so we lie. That means that the sin under the sin of lying is the idolatry of, say, human approval. We're looking more to human approval than to Jesus as our source of worth, meaning, and happiness. Now, the solution is not to love good things less, but to love the best things more. Idols simply can't be removed. They must be replaced. The greatest power in killing our idolatrous desires is by replacing them with a greater desire for Jesus. Jesus alone can satisfy our deepest desires more.
All that the soul needs is found in him. As a Christian writer, George R. Swinnick once wrote, Are you ambitious? He is a crown of glory. Are you covetous? He is unsearchable riches in righteousness. Do you desire pleasure? He is rivers of pleasure and fullness of joy. Are you hungry? He is a feast of wine. Are you weary? He is rest, a shadow from the heat and a shelter from the storm. Are you weak? He is everlasting strength. For a Christian, this is the only way. In 1519, the Spanish explorer Hernando Cortez decided that he wanted to seize the treasure that the Aztecs had been hoarding. He landed his 11 ships on the shores. He was vastly outnumbered by a huge and powerful empire that had been around for 600 years. Some of his men were unconvinced of success and tried to seize some ships to escape to there, escape from there. He wanted to make sure that the remainder of his men were completely committed to his mission and questions. So he did something how they would ever get home. But his answer was, if we're going home, we're going home in their ships. The path forward was clear for Cortez. All or nothing, 100% commitment. The option was failure or failure was gone. Conquer as heroes or die. By doing this, the level of commitment of the men was raised to an extreme level, much higher than anyone could have imagined. Incredibly, they succeeded in this unlikely feat. In 600 years, no one else had been able to conquer the Aztecs and plunder their riches. They were able to do it because there was no choice, no fallback. The ships were gone. The only alternative was death. As Christians, the allure to return to idolatry should not be underestimated. But we know these things can never satisfy or save. So we should seek to destroy these idols in our life, right down to a fine powder, so to speak, so that we might commit our whole hearts to God and the infinitely more valuable and more satisfying treasure that we have through Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Saviour, help us. We are slow to learn and prone to forget. May we never seek in the creature what can only be found in the Creator. Help us to discern our idols and see through their lies and set, um, set you as a greater desire for us in our hearts. Make it our chiefest joy to study you, to meditate on you, to gaze on you and to be satisfied in you. And remember your promises and let not faith cease from seeking you until it vanishes into sight. Ride forth in us, King of kings and Lord of lords, that we may live victoriously and in victory attain our end, rest with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.